Hi, uh, I'm Mark Goldstein from um, uh, Cornell Medical College in New York City. Uh, my faculty, Peter Chan from McGill in Montreal, Mark Sigmund um, at Brown, Rhode Island. Um, and it's a pleasure to uh, welcome you all. Um, I'm going to start by uh, discussing why bother evaluating the male in the era of assisted reproduction, in particular IVF ICSI. Um, I know I'm, I'm probably speaking, uh, <coughs> preaching to, to the choir, but nonetheless, uh, there may be some information that you're not aware of. First, um, uh, well, the next uh, slide, Vanessa, why evaluate the male? Keep going, the first slide. Okay, um, you know, I reported this uh, with Jay Rahman, uh, uh, one of our former residents, and Craig Norbert uh, back in 2005, that there was a three to 10 times increased incidence of testicular cancer um, in men presenting with infertility. Um, we know now there are many other studies showing the same thing. This is particularly true in men with non-obstructive vasospermia, um, and uh, uh, Mark Sigmund, Peter Chan, and I will discuss that further. There are quite a few others that show the same thing. So there are health issues associated with uh, male infertility. Um, and then there are other um, uh, related issues uh, that will be discussed by my colleagues. Um, one of the other issues that has come to light uh, more recently um, is the effect of varicocele. Everyone knows uh, for decades um, uh, that varicocele is associated with fertility issues, but what's been more recently um, uh, found and we first reported this, Corey uh, Tanrakut, one of my former fellows, reported this with me um, about 15 years ago, uh, showing that varicocele is a risk factor, not just for infertility, um, but is a risk factor uh, for low testosterone. Um, uh, a lot of my patients, uh, when I uh, ask them, what's the other function of the testis besides making sperm? And they throw up their hands and say, I don't know. And then I say, well, make the male hormone, testosterone. That's what gives you your sex drive, your energy level, your muscle strength. So that's an important long-term health issue um, aside from fertility. Um, and we now know that um, uh, microsurgical repair of varicocele significantly increases uh, serum testosterone levels. And in some men, um, it can um, uh, reverse some of the adverse effects of low testosterone. Uh, we know testosterone is responsible, as I said, for libido, energy level, erectile function, but it's also a risk factor for osteopenia and osteoporosis. All of us know um, that um, uh, women, uh, when they uh, go through menopause and their uh, female hormones are lower, have a higher risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. But what's been more recently determined is that even younger men who have persistently low testosterones and I'll let Mark Sigmund address what's a low testosterone, um, uh, are also at uh, a higher risk, up to a 25 to 30% risk, even in young men um, who have persistently low testosterones. So that's another reason um, uh, to consider a varicocele repair for low T. Finally, um, and uh, uh, Peter Chan and Mark will also discuss this, um, the effect of varicocele on sperm DNA fragmentation and the outcomes of assisted reproduction. Um, uh, it's now been shown that uh, repairing varicoceles uh, significantly decreases uh, DNA damage and uh, also um, significantly increases um, art outcomes. So, um, uh, in fact, there are many men who uh, are azospermic and the assisted reproductive doctors usually only turn to us in men who are zero. Um, but in fact, um, by treating men, and one of the possible treatments is repairing varicoceles, um, about 40% of men can get return of sperm to their ejaculate 
um, uh, sufficient um, uh, for pursuing IVFXE without having to um, uh, dig into the testis. And most, most patients would certainly prefer that. Uh, next slide. Okay, next slide. So this is a concept I came up with, I don't know, Mark and, and Peter would know, the idea of upgrading fertility status. Um, any treatments that can upgrade the fertility status of couples are beneficial. Um, uh, uh, years ago, when I first started in this field, we're talking 37 years ago, um, for many patients, for example, with absence of the vast deferens, all we could offer them was donor sperm or adoption. Um, then IVF uh, came along, um, and all of a sudden, uh, we had another option. Um, uh, patients who had sperm um, uh, injected uh, by intrauterine insemination uh, after aspiration from the epididymis, we often would get great sperm, but none of them got pregnant. Uh, then Gian Piero Palermo, um, uh, 22 years ago, um, uh, developed the ICSI procedure, actually by accident. Um, uh, he, he accidentally injected a sperm into the egg and all the other um, uh, andrologists would have discarded it, but Gian Piero had the foresight to say, let's wait and see what happened. And, and, and lo and behold, um, uh, uh, it fertilized, um, and, and that, that's how ICSI was developed. Uh, so now, uh, instead of donor sperm or adoption for men with absent vas, it went from being the worst diagnosis for an infertile man to the best. We now have the highest pregnancy rates um, uh, using IVF ICSI in men with congenital absence of the vas deferens with sperm to retrieve. Um, but we can now, um, in many men who don't have absence of the vas, uh, we can do surgical sperm retrieval for ICSI, and treating the man will allow a better chance of surgical sperm retrieval working. Uh, finally, we can upgrade them from uh, surgical sperm retrieval to IVF ICSI, as I'd mentioned, with ejaculated sperm. Um, in men that uh, are usually not men who are non-obstructive azo, but men with just low counts, poor quality, uh, we can often make them candidates for IUI, and a significant number can go on uh, to achieve a natural conception. Um, so the concept of upgrading fertility status is one um, that I've been promoting uh, for a long time. And then uh, before I uh, hand over to Mark, I see I have five more minutes, I just want to um, uh, make a comment on uh, video visits. Um, I had uh, uh, been doing uh, Skype visits and uh, the such for, uh, for patients from uh, Europe and whatever who wanted to talk to me first, and they worked out pretty well. Um, but they've been, uh, we now have a special app at Wild Cornell uh, Connect, um, and we've been doing video visits uh, since March. Um, I've done, I don't know, two dozen video visits, and I've been really impressed with how good uh, a video visit can be. You can see the couple, they can see you. Um, I, I, I actually um, uh, bring uh, uh, my charts showing the uh, anatomy, um, so I can explain the anatomy to patients. Um, and then uh, I have other diagrams, pictures of sperm. I show them, they can understand, and I get a really complete history, and with our epic system, it prevents me from missing anything. Um, but what's more interesting, you think the one thing you can't do with a video visit is a physical exam, right? Everybody assumed that's the one thing you couldn't do. Um, in more than two-thirds of my video visits, I can actually uh, complete um, a good part of the physical exam. For example, um, I can assess body habitus. I'll tell the patient to undress and stand before me. Does he have the typical Kleinfelter's or Coleman syndrome body habitus? Is he fully masculinized? Does he have hair on his chest? Does he have a beard? 
And what's most interesting, I have them drop their shorts. I tell them to make sure they're nice and warm down there and show me their testicles. Um, I diagnosed a huge varicocele, which collapsed when the patient lie down, just on a video visit. Um, I, a patient, the last patient I operated on, on March 11th, um, I did a video visit post-op, um, and uh, uh, the patient said everything was fine, except he noticed a little bump at the bottom of his scar, and he was wondering uh, if that's a problem. So I said, drop your shorts and show me. And the resolution is so good, I was easily able to tell him that's just the bump from the buried dissolvable uh, knot that takes about three to six months to completely dissolve. It's absolutely nothing to worry about. It's normal. I can even assess testicular volume. Um, I can often, and I show the patient my orchidometer. I tell them if your testicles are this size, it suggests it's a production problem. If they're this size um, and the ducts feel swollen, uh, then this tells us it's probably an obstructive problem. So I've been actually uh, very impressed with how much of the physical exam I can complete. And then I can schedule a patient uh, for surgery um, and then just see them the morning before surgery to complete the physical exam. Or if there appears to be some doubt um, about um, uh, uh, whether the diagnosis is correct, then I'll typically see them uh, a few days in advance or a week or so in advance. So the video visits is gonna be the wave of the future. All of us know that medicine is never going to be the same. Um, we're all going to be doing video visits as our initial um, uh, evaluation, and then the physical exam as a follow-up. Um, but uh, I've been very impressed with how good uh, video visits can be in many, many ways. So I'm now gonna turn over the uh, um, uh, microphone to Mark Sigmund, uh, who's going to discuss with you uh, uh, evaluation uh, and uh, treatment of azospermia medical management. Mark? Thank, thank you, Mark. Uh, welcome to the, the course. I'm going to go over the basic evaluation of the mail. All of this is in the PDF uh, downloads that you should be able to uh, look at. I don't have control. It's not switching slides. There we go. Anatomy is important. Um, one important point, if I can get the slides to go backwards, is to keep in mind of the various parts of the anatomy. The two parts important for seminal plasma are the seminal vesicles. They melt an alkaline solution, and that's the majority of the ejaculate, and the prostate is acidic. So if the seminal vesicles are blocked or absent, you'll have a small volume acidic specimen. That's very important to remember when you're diagnosing infertility problems. Some background material, you need to know what normal fertility is. And about 85% of couples that are trying to conceive normally will be able to do so within one year of unprotected intercourse. That comes down to about a 20 to 25% chance of pregnancy per month with intercourse. It's been shown that conception can occur if the couple happens to have intercourse six days prior to all the way through, including the day of ovulation. The eggs don't last very long, so if they miss the day of ovulation after a day, they probably have missed the window. Sperm live for at least a couple days, so it's no big uh, important accuracy. You have to time intercourse to the minute. About every other day usually is gonna be sufficient. If 85% are able to conceive, that leaves the infertile group, which is about 15% of couples. 
those couples will continue to conceive, but at a significantly lower rate, two to three percent a month, at about up to close to a third, will eventually conceive on their own, but that's clearly a lower rate than normal. And in about half of infertile cases, there is at least a male factor involved, if not a total cause of infertility. You've heard about some of the goals, and just to briefly go over them, if they have a fixable cause, we want to be able to fix it. If it's irreversible, but might be able to use the patient's sperm for assisted reproductive techniques or IUI, we want to identify those, don't waste time trying to fix it and proceed with these techniques. On the other hand, if we know we're not going to be able to find sperm, they're azospermic, we want to know that off the bat and move them on to donor insemination or adoption. As you've already heard, there are life-threatening conditions like testis cancer, which can occur, and there's increasing numbers of genetic abnormalities that can be transmitted to the children and may have health consequences for the patient as well. You've already heard some of this. It's not common, but it's common enough overall, about a little over 1% of the patients. And these are some of the things that were found in one of the studies. Slide doesn't appear to be advancing. Uh, of the genetic conditions, there are those that are big. We call them gross chromosomal abnormalities. That'll be picked up by a karyotype. And that's about 6% of all infertile men. But the lower the sperm count, as you see, the more common it is, particularly more common in azospermic or severely oligospermic men. There's also very small deletions, which you will not pick up with a karyotype, and you need something called a Y-chromosome microdeletion analysis, and that's about 10% of azospermics and about 5% of severely oligospermics, particularly in those less than a million sperm for CC. Getting a big lag on. So when, when should you evaluate? Well, certainly when the patient presents to you questioning their infertility, you don't always need to wait a year, although that's often the definition that the insurance companies may use. So it's been at least a year. You should certainly recommend an evaluation, or if they just present earlier, you can start one. And certainly if there's risk factors, somebody has a history of bilateral undescended testes, you're not going to say, come back after you've tried for a year. The basic evaluation is the same as you do for any other evaluation with some specific caveats. You're gonna do your history, your physical. Everybody's gonna get a couple semen analyses, and then you're gonna to try to come up with a differential diagnosis. You may get additional laboratory tests, and then, then try to narrow down the diagnosis. It is very, very useful to have the patient fill out a questionnaire before you see them. You can go over it. It goes over a lot of different areas, the sexual history, developmental history, surgery, medicines that may be on, and social history, particularly for lifestyle factors, which can affect uh, fertility. In addition, their occupation may be important, so some of the occupations put men at risk for infertility problems. You never know what you're going to discover in the history, and sometimes patients forget things, so it's important to ask them. In addition, you want to know something about the female side as if there's significant female factors that may very well alter what your recommendations are gonna be. Now, despite that men may not appreciate or want an exam, they do need an exam. For those that code, it's gonna be a level four or five exam. Um, much of it, as you've heard, you can do on video, but ultimately you're going to need to do a uh, 
touch with your fingers to feel the consistency of the testis, the epididymis, the presence or absence of the vas, and for anything but large varicoceles, you'll need to feel those. A couple important points, you always want to palpate distinctly the vas deferens. Congenital absence of the vas is a physical exam diagnosis, it's not an ultrasound diagnosis. The varicocele, you all know you need to do it in a warm room, the patient needs to be standing. You can have them push their belly out, that keeps the cremasteric reflex from acting up and that'll enlarge the veins, and then you're going to grade it. And just a comment, and you hear subclinical varicoceles, meaning those only identified by something like ultrasound but not palpable, we generally don't go after and treat. We grade them as grade one, two, three, or small, medium, and large. So your fingers are very important during the exam. Following the history and the physical, you then go on to laboratory testing. And as I mentioned, everybody's going to need semen analyses. That's the cornerstone of the evaluation. The WHO puts out uh, standard reference ranges. These are the current ones uh, that you've probably all seen. Usually we require a minimum of two semen analyses. If they're greatly discrepant, we're gonna have the couple do more. You wanna give them directions specific for your laboratory. Tell them not to use things like mustard jars. Don't keep it warm in the oven. Those don't do well for semen analyses. Another important point just to mention that in addition to sperm, there will be round-like cells. Those can be baby sperm or germ cells, you call them immature germ cells, or can be white blood cells, and they look similar, and you, if you have a lot of those, you need special staining to differentiate them. So we always give the patients handouts as to the directions. Another important point is individual semen parameters, whether it's concentration, motility, or morphology, are not great predictors of fertility unless they're zero. Uh, as individual parameters. The more parameters that are abnormal, so if you just count as low or count and motility or count and motility and morphology, the greater the chance that particular couple is going to have a fertility problem. The other point is that low numbers don't exclude pregnancy by other techniques such as IUI, IVF. There's a lot of terms we use. These are, and these are in your handout. Uh, in case you hear people using them, this is just what they mean. Once you've done your history, your physical, your semen analyses, you can look at lists like this and try to come up with what's the differential diagnosis. And one way of uh, categorizing them is look at the semen analysis and based on what the main problem is, you can look at what the differential options are going to be. And based on that, you can decide, does the patient need additional, more specialized testing? There's a lot of potential additional tests. And one thing I will say is most patients don't need them. You need them when you're gonna do something about it. And those, the common ones that we are gonna order will be a hormone test, genetic tests, sometimes a post urine. We'll talk about DNA fragmentation and then some of the other tests down here are options. Hormone testing, the main indication is a low sperm density because as, as the testosterone level drops, it's sperm production that tends to be affected. So low sperm density is the main indication. Additionally, if a male has erectile dysfunction, you may want to consider getting that as well. If you start with an FSH and a serum testosterone that should be done in the morning, that's usually sufficient. If those are normal, you won't need other hormone tests. If those are abnormal, you're going to get some follow-up testing with an LH and a prolactin, as well as repeat the testosterone. I tend to prefer a bioavailable testosterone or a free testosterone if it's done by something that's not called an analog assay, which tends to be inaccurate. A couple of comments on FSH. The 
the normal range that's typically published with your report from commercial labs will go up to around 18. 18 is not normal. Normal sperm production is less than about 7, 7.4 thereabouts. So once it gets over that range, I start to think that you have impaired sperm production. This is normal fertility. 18 is not normal fertility. And that's something you should always keep in mind because the, the reports are inaccurate. Once you've done your hormones, you can look at a table like this. If the hormones are abnormal, you can decide, does it look like testicular failure, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism? Very common nowadays. I think we all are seeing patients taking testosterone and not from their physician or sometimes from T-clinics. And as we'll see, that is not good for sperm production. Now, I want to hit a, a little bit about some of the genetic testing. One important point is don't use a shotgun approach. You need to know what you're trying to diagnose. And it, when we're talking about azospermia, meaning no sperm in the semen, it's either one of two different categories. Either the patient doesn't make sperm, that's non-obstructive azospermia, or the patient makes sperm, but there has an obstruction. So the two potential possibilities are a genetic abnormality that you'll pick up with a karyotype and a Y-chromosome microdeletion assay if it's NOA or non-obstructive azospermia. And that's going to be most commonly identified in those with less than about a million sperm per cc or azospermia. On the other hand, if the physical and semen parameters suggest congenital bilateral absence of the vas, and that's a low volume acidic semen specimen and maybe non-palpable vas, which is the usual finding, then you're going to order tests such as a cystic fibrosis screen with an extended panel. We'll go into that and a 5T analysis. But there's no reason generally to order both this and that, because they're completely different etiologies. Once you have your karyotype results, you can sort of classify them as problems with the abnormal numbers of chromosomes, whether extra chromosomes, missing chromosomes, structural abnormalities, such as these. And the effect on fertility is going to depend on a particular abnormality. If the whole AZF region, which is on the long arm of the Y chromosome, is missing, they're going to be azospermic. We're not going to find sperm. You don't need to do a testicular sperm extraction. The most common one I just mentioned briefly is Kleinfelter syndrome. That's a karyotypically identified abnormality. An extra X chromosome is the most common pattern. There can be mosaics and there can be extra more than two X chromosomes in some. Successful sperm retrievals in about 50% of patients. This is actually a good finding when we find this on the exam. You can tell them that they have a reasonable chance of finding sperm. While aneuploidy in the sperm is increased, children by ICSI have essentially been normal, which is reassuring. If we look at the, the microscopic deletions of the Y chromosome, those again are about 10%. Again, more common when it's less, much more common when it's less than 1 million sperm per cc or azospermia. These have a normal phenotype, unlike the Kleinfelders, which have other abnormalities on exam. These patients are completely normal, otherwise beyond maybe having small testes and isolated infertility. The AZF region, as I said, is on the longer arm of the Y chromosome. It's been broken up into three regions, A, B, and C. Deletions will cause infertility. These are so small, they're not going to be seen on a karyotype, so you have to order a Y-chromosome microdeletion analysis. An important point in terms of what does it mean? If they have complete deletions of A or B or a combination of mixtures which can occur, they will be azospermic. They will not have sperm on, on uh, 
sperm extraction. So these folks, you'll generally counsel to proceed with donor termination or adoption. On the other hand, the most common is AZFC, or sometimes you'll get partial deletions, in which case you may find sperm or they may have oligospermia. Uh, what is clear is that the chance of finding sperm when you do that beyond these absolutes that I mentioned, you're not gonna be able to predict it by their test size, big testes, small testes, we can often find sperm, FSH value, or the result of just a general testis biopsy won't tell you you won't find sperm. Obstructive azospermia, congenital cause, congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens. It's associated with absent or hypoplastic seminal vesicles. And as I said, azospermic low volume acidic pH. And it's gonna be due to either one of two causes. The most common cause is mutation in the CFTR gene, which is the gene responsible for cystic fibrosis. As you know, everybody has two copies of most genes. They have to have a mutation in both copies. Uh, there is a variation called a 5T variant, which is considered a mutation for the most part. Uh, if they only have an abnormality in one copy, they're going to be a CF carrier, but they're not going to have a fertility problem. It's also very common in Northern Europeans, so you should think of that when you, when you have patients like this. The other possibility, which is less common, is that it's an embryologic defect not related to cystic fibrosis. And that's often associated with unilateral renal agenesis, and you need to consider getting a renal ultrasound to diagnose uh, absent kidney. Since these patients have an obstruction, they make sperm perfectly normally. You can retrieve sperm, do ICSI, and it's extremely successful. When you do order CF testing, the only comment I'll make is the CF tests are designed for patients with clinical cystic fibrosis. These patients don't have clinical cystic fibrosis. They may have a history of some bronchitis, but they're not sick like standard CF patients. There's over 1,700 mutations that have been diagnosed. The CF panels that you order might test 100 of them, so you and, and they don't necessarily test for those that are most common for CBAVD. The more panel you test for, the more likely that you're gonna find it. You can go all the way to gene sequencing, which is often ordered by the geneticist. Uh, when you order a CF screen, always ask for this thing I mentioned, a 5T analysis, because that is associated with uh, CBABD as well. Why is it important? Very, very important is that since CF as a carrier status is very common, if you don't test the female, which is important if you're going to do IVF, then 50% of the children might have carrier status, but some of them may have clinical cystic fibrosis. So whenever you have CBAVD and you're going to retrieve sperm, have the female tested, have them see a genetic counselor. So sort of in summary for the genetic component, proper diagnosis is very, very important. You're not always gonna to wanna to go proceed with testicular extraction. It depends on the genetics that you've discovered. Some of them have implications beyond infertility for both the patient and the offspring. As I mentioned, if they have a genetic cause, we always send them for genetic counseling. And sometimes if they're gonna proceed with ICSI, they may undergo pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Some other testing I just want to briefly hit on, post-ejaculate urine analysis. The purpose is to identify ejaculatory dysfunction. Is it retrograde ejaculation where the sperm goes backwards into the bladder? So the indication is low volume semen or absent semen. It's not azospermia with a normal seminal volume. 
have the patient void, collect a semen sample, and then void into a second container, and then send that to the laboratory. If there's a lot more sperm in the urine than there are in the semen, they got significant retrograde ejaculation. Many patients will have some sperm in the urine, particularly in the initial portion of the urine, and that's just retained in the urethra. And that's not retrograde ejaculation. It's gotta be more sperm in the urine. You heard a little bit about DNA fragmentation. DNA it can be broken into smaller pieces than it's supposed to be. There's a whole pile of causes of that. Some of them are correctable, some of them are not. But as a general rule, probably DNA fragmentation when it's in excess is not a good thing. There's a variety of tests on the market and a lot of controversy about the role, but it's general way of scoring it is the percent of sperm that have excess fragmented DNA. The concept is high amounts of fragmentation is bad. A common threshold is over 30% is bad. These are some of the most commonly commercially available assays out there. There's some other tests that you may see, just keep those in mind. I'm not getting advancing of the slide. There we go. How do you interpret it? A couple important points. There is some evidence that pregnancy by various means is decreased in those with high DNA fragmentation. There's some limited data indicating that conception rates by intercourse are lower than normal, but they still can occur. So couples should still try by intercourse, even if they happen to have a DNA fragmentation that's elevated. IUI, the data we have suggests that pregnancy rates are quite low. IBF, a little bit lower, but it still occur, but ICSI, much less of an effect for whatever reason. So sometimes if you have somebody that is infertile, you may move them on to ICSI if it's due to DNA fragmentation problems. There also is interesting data that really high DNA fragmentation leads to multiple miscarriages. When we look at what you can do about the tests, it becomes somewhat of a problem. And that has led to some controversy it's not indicated as a routine test on everybody that you're gonna evaluate. But if you have patients that fall into categories such as oligospermia that may have failed ICSI, recurrent miscarriages, those couples may be ones you're gonna do it. If they have a particular risk factor, you saw some of those, you may wanna get that. And then the question is, what can you do about it? If you can treat the underlying condition, whether it's fix the varicocele, as Dr. Goldstein mentioned, smoking, stop smoking, give antioxidants, or just eat more fruits and vegetables, the data, on most of these is limited to in terms of does it lead to live births? People think that hopefully should, but we're still waiting on better data for that. You can go on to ICSI, as I mentioned, and there is a controversy about should you go on to testicular sperm extraction? There is evidence of it. The evidence isn't great at this point in terms of uh, the study designs, but there is evidence that in cases with high DNA fragmentation in the semen, that if you get it out of the testis, it is lower DNA fragmentation and you may end up with higher pregnancy rates and live birth rates going that approach. So in summary, you're going to do a detailed history, physical exam, don't rely on imaging for your exam, use your fingers, and then you're going to do uh, testing. Everybody gets semen analysis and then some of those additional tests if you need it and if you're going to act on it. Now I want to move on to something that's very confusing for many people and that is azospermia. How do you evaluate it? And that seems to confound many people Again, I, I mentioned that there is obstructive and non-obstructive. Obstructive means they make sperm. Sperm just can't get out. The obstruction could be at any portion of the ductal system. Non-obstructive, that there's something wrong with sperm production. And keep that categorization in mind. It helps direct your therapy. 
you're going to diagnose it by doing a couple of semen analyses. If you see sperm, you don't have bilateral obstruction. You don't need to get a post-ejaculate urine in somebody with uh, azospermia. That is, due, that is indicated for low volume, not azospermia per se. In the vast majority of patients, you can sit down after you've done your history, physical, semen analysis, and a serum FSH, and you'll be able to know if they're likely going to be obstructed or non-obstructed. You usually don't need much beyond that. Absence of the VAS is going to be diagnosed by physical exam. If you can't feel it, it's probably not there. Don't do a scrotal exploration to find it. You do not need a scrotal ultrasound to find a VAS deference. If you do the physical exam, you can practice on patients that have vasectomies, obstruction, the epididymis feels full, it's larger, it's very easy to feel. Non-obstructed patients, it tends to be small and empty. Pay attention to the testicular volume. If the testes are small, consider lack of sperm production. If they're higher normal size, consider obstruction. And if they're soft or extremely firm, you might consider that it's a, a sperm production problem. As I mentioned, semen volume does not in and of itself cause azospermia. If you have low volume, it's not going to be retrograde ejaculation if it's low volume azospermia because the sperm can't be filtered out just to go to the bladder. In that case, you could consider ejaculatory duct obstruction, congenital absence of the vas, or testicular failure. If they have normal volume azospermia, it's not likely going to be absence of the vas deferens because that's low volume acidic. It's more likely going to be vasal or epididymal obstruction or just lack of production. So keep that in mind. I find semen pH very helpful. I find fructose totally worthless. You can tell, you need to tell by the pH. Ejaculatory duct obstruction is CBAVD, you'll get acidic pH. Non-obstructive azospermia, you're going to have a normal pH. There's nothing wrong with fructose, I just don't think you need it. For ejaculatory duct obstruction and CBAVD, just to emphasize, testes should be normal. They make sperm normally, sema volume below, pH will be less than seven, it's going to be acidic. Very easy to remember. The FSH, I emphasize again, if it starts to go above seven, start to think impaired sperm production. That's usually, but not always true. Nothing's 100% in medicine. Genetic testing, if you're thinking of non-obstructive azospermia, be specific, get your karyotype and viral chromosome and don't order the CF screening. If you're thinking of congenital absence of the VAS, you're gonna get CF screening with 5T and don't order the others. And again, always get genetic counseling or give it to the patient yourself if you're comfortable with it, if they have a genetic abnormality. Transrectal ultrasonography, it's useful if you're thinking of ejaculatory duct obstruction. It should not be something you routinely get in all patients. The patients that are candidates will be low volume azospermia and the FSH is not high. If the FSH is really high, they don't make sperm, so it really doesn't matter if they're obstructed. And again, don't order it on all azospermic men. Testis biopsy. There's two purposes of testis biopsies. The classic one is a diagnostic one to differentiate obstruction from non-obstruction for lack of sperm production. But as I said, most of the time you will know what the problem is based on your history, physical, and, and laboratory tests. So only use this test for a diagnosis when you don't know what it is. And there are some cases when that'll be the case. Whenever you do a biopsy, always consider doing what we call a therapeutic biopsy. That means when you do the biopsy, take some of it, send it to the embryology or andrology lab for sperm extraction and freezing, and then they could use those sperm for ICSI if you don't have a correctable cause of the infertility. The diagnostic biopsy is indicated when you think they are not having non-obstructive azospermia. So that would be this. 
Don't do it when these characteristics are there because you already know what the problem is. And again, always consider sperm extraction at the time of a diagnostic biopsy if ICSI is going to be an option for that particular couple. In terms of vasograms, don't perform if non-obstructive vasospermia. Only do it if obstruction is present because that's the only time you're gonna do anything about it. And when you do it, do it at the time of reconstruction. Always sample the fluid inside the vas and don't inject fluid towards the epididymis to, to get a contrast picture. You might blow out the epididymis. You can get vasograms showing nice pictures of obstruction. This is a normal one. You see the vas going all the way up to here. You see the seminovesicles. You see it refluxing into the bladder. If you have somebody that's obstructed in the pelvis, you might see something like that. You can look into the, the handouts and the books. They'll have uh, algorithms that help you keep the workup in mind. So in summary, most of the time you'll know it by your history and physical and exam. Uh, in the laboratory testing, try to order specifically what you want. Keep in mind the testis biopsy is only needed if the FSH is not high. And if you're going to do a vasogram, do it at the time of reconstruction. I want to briefly just go over some medical therapy issues of treating infertility, and then we'll go on to Dr. Goldstein's uh, surgery for, for uh, infertility. Getting a lag here again. In general, we'll break it down into those in which you know what the cause is and those you don't know what the cause is. Just because we don't know the cause, it never stops us from trying to treat it, as you'll see. If we do know the cause, sometimes it's uncorrectable. Some of the specific uh, causes for which we can do something about are listed here. Uh, and, that, and that is not a lot of patients susceptible to absolute uh, treatable medical therapy. There's a variety of causes that are not treatable, one of the, or, or, or no specific treatable cause, and that includes idiopathic, meaning there's an abnormal semen analysis, but we don't know what the problem is. You can do the assisted reproductive techniques, or for the idiopathic, in addition to that, you can go ahead and do uh, empiric medical therapy. The empiric medical therapy is based on a, a, a very simple thing. If, if a little of something is good, more of it might be better. Specific therapy works well when we know what the problem is. The problem here is the empiric therapy when we have an alternative such as assisted reproductive techniques. Briefly, hormone therapy for hormone deficiency or excess can work very well. The classic uh, cause of uh, hormone deficiency is hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. It is uncommon, but is treated very well. It's due to a GnRH deficiency causing decreased gonadotropins, and the treatment is going to be gonadotropins, which can be given subcutaneously. A very common um, protocol is to start with HCG for three to six months in that range, adjust it till you get a normal testosterone. You can then add FSH, which is more expensive in this dose, if sperm production is not adequate. And you may have to do it up to nine months or more in some cases before you get adequate numbers of sperm. And these patients respond very well. You tend to get very high fertility rates with intercourse, even if the counts don't reach what we would consider normal. Now, I want to move to empiric medical therapy. Again, it's abnormal semen analysis. We don't know why. 
There are no FDA approved medications for this. All of what I'm talking about is off label. It's important they can know that. As I mentioned, it's based on a little, good, a little bit of something is good. More of it has to be better. So we can stimulate the hypothalamic pituitary gut actus. You can give vitamins and antioxidants, or you can remove things that might be bad, like reactive oxygen species with RS scavengers and antioxidants, or try to remove uh, some estrogen with aromatase inhibitors. These are all approaches. I'll just briefly touch on them. That's the hypothalamic pituitary gadatal axis. We can block negative feedback with clomiphene. We can stop testosterone turning to estrogen with aromatase inhibitors. We can give gonadotropins. All of these will act on this axis. The most common approach has been clomiphene citrate to block the uh, negative feedback of estrogen, which has a very uh, potent negative feedback in the axis up here. Getting a lag again. If you if you block the negative feedback here with clomiphene, you're going to increase gonadotropins. That'll increase FSH and LH and testosterone levels. And the idea being, hopefully, it'll increase sperm production. That doesn't always occur. I want to mention androgen therapy because we still see men be giving testosterone. It is not good for sperm production. It feeds back negatively here. It shuts down the axis. You stop making sperm. Don't do it. Some of the patients will not recover. It's a minority, but in somewhere around 4% don't seem to. The most common estrogen receptor uh, antagonist is clomiphene. It's called a CIRMER, a estrogen receptor modulator. Tamoxifen acts similarly. It's been used for many, many years. These are common doses. You want to uh, start with a relatively low dose and adjust it to get a T in the upper range. The problem with this approach is that we still yet have uh, any excellent data that it's particularly effective. It's very effective in raising testosterone, just not necessarily in raising uh, sperm production. The aromatase inhibition, the idea is you want to increase the TE ratio by decreasing estradiol. Estradiol comes from testosterone. A number that's been used is 10. There's anecdotal evidence in the non-obstructive azospermic patients prior to sperm extraction, but in terms of idiopathic infertility, which is what we're talking about, there's no evidence that it works for empiric therapy in that population. Vitamin therapy, I'll just say a few words. Carnitine has been on the market and the internet for a long time. We really need more studies. But I want to mention two large randomized controlled trials, the FAST and the MOXI trial. You can look them up. They're listed here. That does not work. And I, hopefully that puts an end to that approach. And again, this is for idiopathic infertility. So overall, there's no proven effective therapy. There's no FDA-approved ones. Most of the proposed treatments are either ineffective or we just don't have good evidence. If you're going to do it, because a couple doesn't want to do anything else. It's easy to say, go ahead and do IVF, but if it's not covered and they can't afford it, they may want to do this. So we still do it occasionally. We'll try it up to six months. If there's no improvement in sperm production by six months, we would stop it. The couple's got to decide between ART and empiric therapy. ART has a much quicker time to conception, but it is expensive. It's more invasive to the female and has the risk of multiple births. The empiric therapy is certainly cheaper, the problem being the efficacy and the time it can take before you may see a result. But it does allow the couple to try to conceive at home without their doctor being involved. I'll now turn it over to Dr. Goldstein.
Okay. All right. That was great, Mark. Just a couple of comments, and I've been making the same comments for a long time, but um, more valuable uh, than an ultrasound, in my opinion, um, is uh, in evaluating the infertile male when it comes to the physical exam, a heating pad, a simple heating pad. Uh, Mark uh, mentioned that the patient should be examined in a warm room. Uh, the idea is to eliminate um, what I call the Seinfeld effect. Uh, when uh, George got out of a cold pool and a, a young lady accidentally um, uh, looked down and saw he was all shriveled up and he started to scream, I was in the pool, I was in the pool. So um, a warm room will, will, will prevent that. Um, but then uh, the patient will be warm, um, the doctors will be warm, uh, the assistant in the room will be warm. Um, much simpler, recommended to me by one of my former nurses over 20 years ago, is an ordinary heating pad. It costs about $10. Um, my nurse puts the patient in the room, has the patient completely undressed, put on a gown, then puts a heating pad right on the scrotum um, for about five minutes, and that relaxes the dartos muscle. Remember, the scrotum is designed to keep the testes two to three degrees cooler than body temperature, um, and uh, the scrotal skin contributes to that. When you make an incision in the scrotum, not a single fat cell, nowhere else in the body, not even in morbidly obese men, they don't have a single fat a single fat cell. It's very thin, it's very stretchy, and if you can get it to relax with an ordinary heating pad, then you can do a much better exam. What, what one doctor would say uh, is a subclinical varicocele. I've even seen patients who were diagnosed with subclinical, and when I had the heating pad on, I could easily see that it's a small grade three varicocele. Easily, uh, easy to find a grade two varicocele. So I implore you, just use an ordinary heating pad, costs about $10. Cover it uh, with the pillowcase and change the pillowcase between every patient. And I found that more valuable than ultrasound or any other uh, diagnostic imaging. Finally, something to reiterate that Mark mentioned, never do a post-ejaculate urine in a patient that has zero sperm in his anti-grade ejaculate. Never ever will a patient who has nothing in an antegrade, will he have anything in the retrograde? Now, of course, if the patient doesn't have any antegrade, not even a drop to put on the slide, then of course you want to do a post-ejaculate urine. Um, finally, um, and Mark mentioned this, never give a patient testosterone, never trust the patient, who when you do your uh, basic evaluation that Mark suggested, has a high testosterone and a very low LH and FSH, never trust when they say they've never taken testosterone, they may say, oh yeah, a buddy in the locker room gave me something. Um, and this can cause irreversible azospermia. I've seen this in professional athletes uh, and actors who've been taking intramuscular testosterone. Typically, uh, they're less likely to recover if they've been taking it IM and over a many year period. Less likely if they've just been using androgel and using it for a shorter period of time. And now, um, uh, and I know Mark uh, and, and will address this uh, uh, down the line, there's now actually oral um, uh, testosterone therapy and it may be even more commonly prescribed. It's ironic how often endocrinologists um, uh, will prescribe testosterone to men for infertility uh, who don't understand that it suppresses sperm production. The next slide. Okay, so as Mark mentioned, um, uh, the first thing you want to do in evaluating someone who's absolutely azospermic is distinguish between obstruction versus lack of production. 
And as Mark suggested, you almost never need to do a biopsy for that reason. Um, usually, um, uh, with the normal FSH, normal testicular volume, full epididymides. Um, and finally, I'll mention something that's not as well known as it should be. If you have positive anti-sperm antibodies in your blood, you cannot have antibodies uh, against sperm in your blood if you're not making uh, sperm. So a very simple test I do in all men where I'm trying to determine is it obstruction versus lack of production. I don't need to do it in a man with congenital absence of the vas because that's your diagnose on exam. Um, but if you are not sure which it is, take a simple blood test for anti-sperm antibodies. If they're highly positive, then you know they're obstructed and you don't need to do a diagnostic biopsy uh, to determine which it is. You can go straight uh, to either sperm retrieval or reconstruction. Non-obstructive vasospermia, elevated FSH, small soft testis. Again, you don't need to do a biopsy. Next slide. Um, uh, this just shows the diagnostic performance. Uh, presence of antibodies is highly accurate in predicting obstructive vasospermia. It obviates the need for a testis biopsy to distinguish obstructive from non-obstructive. Next slide. Uh, finally, if you do um, have to do a biopsy because, say, the testis are normal in size, the FSH is normal, you're not sure of the ducts um, uh, indurated or not indurated, um, I do the biopsies always under a microscope. Uh, this is a, a nice image provided by uh, John Jarrow, um, who injected the arteries of the testis. And you'll notice um, that the blood vessels um, uh, are, are right under the surface of the tonica albuginia. And with a microscope, you can see where they are. So actually, an open biopsy through a very small scrotal incision directly over the testis, exposing the tonica albuginia, you could see exactly where the blood vessels are, and it's actually safer. And according to patients who've had the percutaneous attempts, it's less painful, um, and um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much better procedure than doing a blind percutaneous uh, biopsy. Next slide. Um, here, this just shows the, you can see the area between um, the vessels on the top left, um, and you don't need to take very much. Uh, with um, uh, a iris scissors, you can remove a small piece, and if they're obstructed, they'll contain millions of sperm. You can touch a slide to that, look at it, and right away you can see if there are many sperm, then you know they're obstructed. And then you should always, as Mark suggested, biopsies should never be purely diagnostic. They should be potentially therapeutic. Any sperm that are found should be cryopreserved for possible future technique, uh, for possible future use. Next slide. Vasography, as Mark mentioned, it should, it, it's almost never indicated at the time of a, of a biopsy. A lot of urologists routinely do a vasography at the time of a biopsy, and all that serves to do is often result in a stricture at the site of the vasography. So vasography, there are only two questions you want to answer. The first question is, are there sperm in the vasal fluid? If you find sperm when you touch the slide to the testicular end, then you know the epididymis is not obstructed. So the next question, is the vas obstructed? So gently insert a 24-gauge angiocath sheath toward the abdominal end um, and inject it. If it doesn't go in and you see there's a big hernia scar, just, just send a, a, a 2-0 proline suture up, and if it stops in the middle of the hernia scar, you don't even need to inject contrast. Next slide. This shows a, uh, um, an example um, of someone 
who has uh, a normal vasogram. You can see the, um, the fluid, as Mark showed, going down and right outside the penis. Copious basal fluid containing many sperm means basal or ejaculatory duct obstruction. Absence of sperm in the basal fluid in someone who has a normal biopsy or someone who has a highly positive antibody test tells you right away that it's epididymal obstruction. Next slide. Um, so in general, vasography is rarely indicated. Don't do it at the time of biopsy. Only do it at the time of reconstruction. This is an example of someone who is obstructed on the right from a hernia repair. On the left side, he had had uh, an undescended testicle, which was atrophic, uh, but had no hernia on that side. I was able to cross uh, the uh, vas from the left atrophic testis over to the right side, doing a transeptal vasovasostomy instead of having to dig into the groin. Next slide. Uh, vasectomy reversal is by far the most common um, uh, form of microsurgical reconstruction. We know there's over a half a million vasectomies per, per year. On the two coasts, the divorce rate is roughly 50%. Somewhere between 2 and 6% of vasectomized men ultimately seek a reversal. Um, Bob Brannigan um, uh, published a paper more recently showing that the percentage of vasectomies, vasectomized men um, that express interest in reversal is actually as high as 20%. Of, of the azospermic men, about 6% of them is due to iatrogenic injury, almost all from hernia repairs. Next slide. Um, and the technique um, uh, that uh, uh, I described, uh, if you have a vas obstruction and there's sperm in the vas, and you have healthy vas, and use this technique um, that I developed called the microdot technique, um, you can have a patency rate of as high as 99% in selected patients. Um, the reason for this, uh, and those of you who uh, have done a lot of reversals or any reversals, uh, know that on the testicular end, uh, since sperm production continues unabated after a vasectomy or an obstruction for any reason, the testicular end becomes very dilated. Um, but the abdominal end remains very small. The abdominal end is about uh, 300 microns in diameter, and as you can see in the top left, the testicular end um, can be two to five times larger. And what I found um, uh, is that in the beginning of my career doing reversals back in uh, the early 80s, um, that I'd end up with dog ears. All of you know what that means. And sperm would leak out, and leaking sperm is bad for the anastomosis. Uh, so I developed this little system of making dots. Um, I, I found that uh, four dots uh, was too few. Uh, silver originally used four sutures. Um, and eight dots was too many. I had a higher shutdown rate. I find six sutures, six 10 double on monofilament nylons is perfect for every anastomosis. Um, and um, by putting needles through the dots, I don't have to then pay attention uh, to where the placement is. It separates the planning from the placement. Um, uh, so if you were building a bridge, which is what a vasovasostomy is, for example, you're building a bridge across an obstruction, you wouldn't call a contractor and say, build me a bridge, you call an architect first to make a blueprint. So this is making a blueprint. So then I don't have to focus on anything when I'm putting in the sutures or with working with my fellow, I tell my fellow, put the needle through the dot. And if you do that every time, you're gonna get a perfect anastomosis. And then, uh, so I'll use six 10 monofilament nylons. The other thing I introduced a long time ago was the use of double arm needles. So you never have to worry about backwalling. Um, and I use uh, six 10 double-arm monofilament nylons 
for the mucosa, uh, six nino um, single arm uh, or double arm uh, for the uh, muscularis, exactly in between each pair of mucosal sutures. This makes it watertight. This is not like a blood vessel. Basal food contains no platelets. It contains no clotting factors. Um, so if you have any leaks, sperm is going to leak out, and sperm, when seen by your immune system, is highly antigenic. That's why 70% of men after vasectomy have detectable levels of anti-sperm antibodies uh, in their blood. So it has to be watertight, perfect mucosal approximation, uh, and there has to be no tension. Next slide. Uh, I think this might be the movie. So this shows me marking the dots. You have to dry the cut surface of the vas with a dry wax cell, and you have to use a micro marking pen, um, uh, which is uh, probably, the, it, it's on a lot of the literature uh, on my website, what marking pen we use. Um, and then after we mark it out, uh, I then uh, just have to focus on putting a stitch uh, right through the dots. And this shows the placement of the mucosal sutures. And then after doing three mucosal sutures, I flip it over. Next slide. That's what I call the moment of truth to see if you get a perfect uh, anastomosis. If I find sperm on the testicular end of the vas, and um, uh, it's healthy vas, not just the patent lumen, but healthy muscle, and you can see three nice healthy rings, and I even like to see the deferential artery and vein. I cut back until I see them and tie them separately. Uh, sperm will appear in the uh, semen in 99.5% of those men. Um, and overall, uh, more than half of them will get pregnant. If you eliminate female factor, it's almost 64%. Uh, and it's very much related to time since obstruction. Uh, over 15 years, 84% um, pregnancy rates. Um, uh, over 15 years, 44% pregnancy rate. Next slide. Epididymal obstruction. By far the most difficult operation in all of microsurgery. Um, this is a nice paper from Keith Jarvie and his group, and Armand Zini, my former fellow um, uh, in uh, Canada. And uh, basically, what they determined is that if you're not able to do a, a vasoepididymostomy, uh, that certainly in men with obstructive intervals longer than five years since the vasectomy, um, you should be able to do a VE. If you can't do a VE, you shouldn't be doing reversals in men over five years out. Next. I'm not going to go into the details. This is what the fluid would look like in the testicular end of the vas um, in men who have epididymal obstruction. You'll find thick, white, toothpaste-like fluid uh, that doesn't mix well with water and does not contain any sperm. That's an absolute indication uh, to do a vasoepi. Next slide. Um, uh, this is a brief um, uh, a video showing the two-suture technique um, that Peter Chan uh, uh, came up with when he was my fellow. Um, and this simplifies the technique by using only two sutures in the epididymal tubule. Um, you only have four needles. You're much less likely to make mistakes. Um, and all the needles are going inside out. And by making the incision longitudinal, as opposed to the uh, transverse uh, that Joel Mama had once suggested, you can make a larger opening in the tubule. Um, and uh, then the second layer is um, uh, just uh, to completely seal it and make it watertight. Uh, we get a patency rate return of sperm to the ejaculate in 84% and a naturally conceived pregnancy rate of 40% in 
this is certainly a, a, a reasonable alternative to IVF. When I do the, IV, the uh, vasoepis, I always will retrieve sperm. Because one of the dirty little secrets of microsurgery is the late shutdown rate. For vasovasostomy, men who are initially patent, at 18 months, 15% of them become azospermic. In men who have initial patency for a VE, uh, at the end of 18 months, 25% uh, of them become azospermic. So two things, if you're doing a VE, always retrieve sperm and cryopreserve it. Number two, as soon as a man gets a, a, an ejaculate post-op, which I start at one month um, after a VE or a VV, have them bank sperm because those will contain many more sperm generally than what you would retrieve. So start banking sperm as soon as motile sperm appear in the ejaculate uh, as a backup. Next slide. Okay, next slide. Just gotta get the next slide there, Vanessa. Okay, yeah, this just shows cryopreservation using simple micropipettes. Just hold the pipette next to the tubule um, uh, that you're um, uh, uh, selected for cryopreservation or selected for um, a VE. And just by capillary action, you can get millions of sperm aspirated into that. This is exactly the technique I use um, uh, for uh, patients with congenital absence of the vas. Next slide. Okay, ejaculatory duct obstruction. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is actually not a very common condition. They'll have a very low semen volume usually much less than two cc's, usually around one. Uh, you don't need to do a fructose test, but if, they, if one is done, it's gonna be negative. And the other thing to remember is the pH is gonna be acid. One of the things to remember um, is the seminal vesicles contain alkaline secretions and the prostate is acid secretions. A normal ejaculate would be alkaline. If it's acid, it means the only component is the prostatic secretions. So pH is actually very helpful. This shows the classic best candidate for ejaculatory duct obstruction. You can see uh, the ejaculatory ducts are obstructed and it goes all the way down below the pubis. If it doesn't go below the pubis, it's not gonna be reachable with a resectoscope. Just aspirate those patients. Next slide. This again shows um, an, a, a, a beautiful case of an obstruction. You can also see the seminal vesicles are dilated. Next slide. Varicocele. Um, you know, varicocele have been known as the cause of infertility um, uh, since Celsus in the first century. Veins that are swollen and twisted over the testicle, which becomes smaller than its fellow. The simple definition from Stuart Howard's dilation of the veins of the pampiniform plexus. Next slide. It causes a progressive decline in fertility. Just because a man was fertile 10 years ago with his wife does not predict he's going to be resistant to varicocele-induced impairment of spermatogenesis. And the best candidates are men uh, and adolescents with large varicocele who will benefit from prophylactic varicocelectomy to prevent future infertility and testosterone deficiency. Next slide. Next. Okay, I'm not going to go into all the techniques. There are various pros and cons to all of them, but Almost every study, including the AUA guidelines, um, uh, agree that um, the microsurgical technique, uh, which preserves the artery, preserves the lymphatics, has the lowest failure rate and the lowest potential for serious morbidity. Um, next slide. 
this is a uh, short video. And uh, so I, I make an incision right within the skin lines. Um, uh, you'll get a finer scar and you'll be between the blood vessels. Um, the incision is right over the external inguinal ring. I don't open the external oblique anymore, although if you're not experienced, opening the external oblique and going higher makes the operation easier. Um, if I find superficial epigastric artery in vein, I'll ligate those. This simple technique, I put a Richardson retractor in, to one side and, the, and then down my finger, and the only thing that exits the external ring is the stomatic cord. I grab it with a Babcock clamp, get around it, um, uh, with a large uh, pen rose, bring in the operating microscope, open the internal and external somatic fascia. I open the external somatic fascia between the cremaster muscles because I, in addition to preserving the testicular artery, I like to preserve the cremasteric artery as well. There's no reason not to. It can provide up to a third of the blood supply to the testis. Then open the internal somatic fascia, which is pretty avascular, so I use a scissor for that. You don't want to use a bogey for the internal somatic fascia because if the artery is immediately subjacent, you may end up cooking it. You can see the huge um, uh, varicose vein there. And then with the aid of the Doppler and the uh, microscope, I look for the testicular artery. And I don't know if we have sound, but you could hear the um, artery and you could see it. Uh, it's often in a little network of veins. If you see a tiny network of veins with an X-like configuration or an H-like configuration, the artery is going to be immediately subjacent. I use the same micro, here. this is the pulsation test. If you lift up with a micro needle holder, you see little pulsations in the artery, and that proves it's an artery as opposed to the vein. And then there's no place in here to be putting clamps, uh, so I pass two sutures, boro silk underneath. And here's another example showing the pulsation in the artery itself. And when you see that, there's only one thing it can be. It can only be an artery. That's the, the, the partial occlusion test, I call it. And you can see the testicular artery is only about 1.5 millimeters, which is why you have to use a microscope and a Doppler to have a good chance of finding it. I preserve the artery. I use a vessel loop, which is nice and wide and doesn't um, uh, injure the artery. And I'll use this for the internal somatics. Um, I'll use it for the uh, cremasterics. And the only artery we leave and veins we leave intact um, are the um, veins that accompany the vas. Though I always will check the vas, and occasionally you'll see a huge vasal vein. And since there are two sets of veins with the vas, as long as you preserve one of them, you'll be fine. This was showing the lymphatics. You don't have to preserve every lymphatic. If you preserve just a few like that, you're never, ever going to get a hydrocele. I had five hydrocele's in the first 1,500. I've had zero hydrocele's in the last 2,500. So when I finished, I preserved the artery. I've ligated all the veins. I preserved the lymphatics. I've, I, there's no reason to uh, take the deferentials. And yes, unless you see, they're usually um, large. I run the cord over my fingers several times to make sure I haven't missed anything. If you miss even one vein, since they all communicate at the level of the pan-pinniform plexus, all of them will fill up and you'll eventually get a failure. One of the other things I've discovered is that um, uh, failures are more common um, using the balloon or um, a coil occlusion because little channels start to grow through the coils and they get late recurrences. So though the initial uh, success rate of a, uh, em embolization using coils is uh, 80%, um, it's not durable. 
I don't know what the late failure rate is because I'm the one that sees them, um, but because of recanalization, um, it's not as durable. Uh, the other thing I do is uh, I deliver the uh, testis because um, in about 10% of men, there are veins in the gubernaculum. It also makes sure you won't be missing um, any external somatic veins. It's the only way, delivering the testis, that you have direct visual access to every possible route of venous return. And I think that's the reason my failure rate is below 1%. After ligating everything, I like to close um, uh, this chromatic fascia with interrupted sutures of 5-0 vicle. Uh, I close scamper, campers and scarpers with absorbable infiltrate with marking with epi for the skin. And then after a subcuticular closure, just use Steri-Strips. Next slide. Um, uh, this just shows our uh, success rates with this technique. It's now over 4,000. The next slide. Semen analysis um, is related to the size of the varicocele. So when I see a patient with a big varicocele and poor semen quality, I tell them this is good. Uh, the big uh, uh, size of the varicocele predicts poorer pre-op um, uh, semen quality, but the increase post-op is much greater. So whereas at the end of all that, the pregnancy rates are the same, the pre-op semen analysis in men with large ones is much worse. So I'm always much more enthusiastic um, about uh, fixing big ones than small ones. Next slide. Um, it also decreases DNA fragmentation, and there's evidence that that may improve um, both natural pregnancy rates, IUI pregnancy rates, and IVFXE pregnancy rates. Next slide. Um, semen analysis, um, uh, this shows that even in men with non-obstructive azoospermia, a significant percentage, an average of about 25 to 40% will get enough sperm back in their semen to obviate the need for a microtessy, and patients would always prefer that. Next slide. Testosterone is significantly improved. Next slide. So that who, who are the best ones to repair? If you look at this breakdown of varicocele size, this is one of my former uh, residents, Josh Steckel and I published this uh, uh, in 1993, 23% of all varicoceles are large. So that means 3% of all men have large varicoceles. Those are the ones we should target with preventive surgery as adolescents. Those are also the ones that are likely to have the best outcomes. Next slide. Who are the best candidates? Men with low counts, palpable varicoceles, especially big ones. Men with non-obstructive azoospermia and palpable varicoceles. Men with big varicoceles and low T. And finally, boys with big varicoceles, especially if they already have discrepancy in testicular volume. Next. Uh, so it's cost effective. It can upgrade to normal semen, allowing natural pregnancy. It can upgrade to semen adequate for IUI. It could even allow sperm to return to the ejaculate for ICSI. And even if the patients remain azoospermic, there are several papers showing that it may enhance foci of spermatogenesis, improving the outcomes of testicular sperm retrieval. Next. Finally, microsurgery should not be practiced on patients. It should be practiced in the lab. We have a series of courses for those who are interested. They can come and visit and take the course. Next slide. I'm now happy to introduce uh, Peter Chan, uh, who's going to talk about assisted reproductive technologies and the role of urologists. Peter? Great, thank you very much. So, so far we talked about um, the evaluation of male infertility 
medical management and also surgical treatment that you just heard from Dr. Goldstein. Uh, in this part, I'm going to talk about assistive reproductive technologies or ART, specifically what are the roles of urologists uh, in the context of ART. So to begin with, when it comes to fertilization, um, there were different ways we can achieve that. There was uh, natural fertilization, for example, if your sperm count is very good, then you can obviously achieve fertilization naturally. And if your sperm count is lower, depending on the level of the sperm that you have there, you have other choices with the um, uh, assistive reproductive technology. So let's say you have very high sperm count, natural fertilization is possible. If you have lower than that, but you can um, get around 10 millions, preferably, sometimes even between 5 to 10 million of motile sperm in your semen. You can undergo intrauterine insemination or IUI. But if you don't have that amount of sperm, if you have lower than that, let's say around 1 million, you can do what we call in vitro fertilization. If you have much less than that, then the next option would be exit intracytopathic sperm injection, in which all you need is one single good sperm injected into the egg to achieve fertilization. So those are the choices of assistive reproductive technology, depending on how much sperm you can obtain, either by ejaculation or by surgical sperm retrieval. So what are the roles of reproductive urologists in the context of uh, assistive reproduction? I think this is particularly important for example, for new urologists finishing their residency or fellowship, uh, wanting to partner with reproductive center, or for urologists who relocate to a new city, wanting to work with the uh, reproductive center. So there were a couple of points that is important for you to know <clears throat> how to market yourself, how to partner with them, to show them what you can offer. Obviously, as urologists, for patients who are azospermic, you can play the role to retrieve sperm, which is a very important part, as you can imagine, for assisted reproduction. But more than that, as Dr. Sigmund talked about, the evaluation and counseling, particularly not just to work on the fertility issue, but to rule out any more serious underlying conditions such as testis cancer, osteoporosis, that can come along with male um, reproduction uh, defect. So these are important diagnoses to be made during the workup of the patient. So you can definitely play a role to make sure that the general health of the male partner is well uh, by uh, doing a thorough evaluation. And going beyond that, um, having a partner um, as a urologist to look at the male side, I think it can really improve the couple satisfaction because there were so many things that can be done um, to help the couple all together. It's not just one side of treatment. Everything is IVF on the female side. And if you think about that, you know, I have seen cases that uh, a couple went through uh, in vitro fertilization because of poor sperm count. Turns out there was a testis mass that was missed by the gynecologist. So you can imagine the potential legal Implication. So I think you can advise the reproductive center that by having a urologist on board, that can really help them to eliminate any of these potential risks. And another important factor to remember is that these uh, assisted reproductive technology, even IVF or ICSI, their take-home baby or live birth rate each time when you try that, there's only about maybe 30-40% at best. So if you think about it, there was a, these uh, technology, they don't work 100%, and oftentimes they are limited by the fact that the egg quality of the female partner is not very good because of age or other medical condition. There was not much that you can do to change that, to improve the egg's quality. On the other hand, sperm, 
even if you can find them, if they have poor quality, poor motility, for example, or DNA fragmentation, these poor quality of sperm, even if you have them, they can certainly affect, as Dr. Singman mentioned, the assisted reproduction outcome. So the role of urologists by treating the underlying condition, not only can you get more sperm, but you may potentially improve the sperm quality. Now, again, egg quality is difficult to improve, but sperm quality, for example, by correcting the varicose seal, as Dr. Goldstein mentioned, you may be able to improve the quality of the sperm, thereby improve the success rate of the assisted reproduction. So those are some of the key points for you to bring up when you want to partner with the reproductive center um, to have a team effort to work together. So let's focus on the technique on how to obtain sperm for assisted reproduction. There are different approaches to get that. You can first obtain sperm through the ejaculate. And there are different ways to do that if the patient cannot ejaculate naturally. We can have penile vibratory stimulation or electroejaculation, which we're going to touch on in a few minutes. The other way to obtain sperm is to get it from what we call the excurrent ductal system, that is epididymis, vas deferens, for example. So you can obtain sperm from these areas, for example, from the vas deferens, you can, as Dr. Goldstein mentioned, during the vasography to obtain some sperm from that. Sperm can also be obtained in seminal vesicle, but usually these are a little bit more invasive and complicated with the risk of infection. So they are not as popular. And finally, sperm can obviously be obtained from the testis. So we're going to take a look at each of these uh, variations in terms of the technique. First one, penile vibratory stimulation. Um, these are usually used in patients who have difficulty ejaculating or the defect in their ejaculatory pathway, for example, spinal cord uh, injury patient, uh, some patient when they have neuropathy, such as diabetic patient, they may need stronger stimulation, such as um, with a vibrator uh, electrically to obtain uh, the uh, semen through the ejaculation by stronger stimulation. They do have medical gray vibrator available for that, uh, but by and large for most patients, you can just have a strong um, uh, uh, electric vibrator, you can still achieve the same goal for that. It depends on the patient what you would need exactly for that. Key thing to remember is that these patients, because of the ejaculatory defect, when you get um, stimulated ejaculation one time because of the prolonged abstinence period, the semen quality generally they are very poor. So before you actually use the first sample, try to cycle them a couple of times to let them ejaculate away the old sperm, to let the fresh sperm come in another day and then use them for assisted reproduction. That's just one trick that we can uh, remember in these patients. And again, for patients with spinal cord injury, be aware of the autonomic disrespects here for these patients. Electroejaculation, well, not as popular these days because of many of the other techniques uh, available that we're going to touch on after, but uh, has been described for a long time with a special machine in which you would put a probe uh, through the rectum to stimulate the uh, nerve plexus um, just behind the prostate. Um, not a very uh, popular technique, but it still can be done to obtain semen that can be used even for intrauterine insemination instead of going through IVF. Um, key thing to remember is that if the patient has sensation that has to be done under anesthesia, uh, which makes it very difficult to do um, these cycling, to have multiple trials to get rid of the previous old sperm like we have for vibratory stimulation. And also you have to be very careful with rectal damage as a potential complication with electrical ejaculation. So let's talk about obtaining sperm for in the setting, not for insemination, but for IVF exit when you just need very few number of sperm. 
Well, where are the popular places to take sperm from? Well, if you look at the current ductal system, the epididymis is a popular place to obtain sperm because sperm, they get mature in the epididymis. So that's why taking sperm from there, you're more likely to get sperm that are motile for the embryologist to select sperm that are viable, that are living, that has the better motility for the uh, ICSI procedure. Sperm can also be taken from the testis and those sperm, oftentimes they're in motile. You can sometimes find motile sperm in it, but in the epididymis, you're more often seeing motile sperm than in the testicular sperm. So those are the locations you can do that. In terms of the technique for sperm retrieval for ICSI, um, for the um, patients who have obstructive basospermia, certainly by definition, they can have sperm leaving the testes to get to the excurrent ductal system. Therefore, you can obtain sperm from the epididymis by PISA percutaneous epididymal sperm aspiration, or MISA, the microsurgical counterpart for that. In patients with non-obstructive azospermia, by definition, they, you, they would not have any sperm in the excurrent ductal system. They're simply not enough to flow outside the testes. So you have to obtain sperm from the testes by either TISA, the aspiration version, or TZ, the extraction version, when you actually take a piece of the parenchyma of the seminiferous tubule. So let's take a look at these techniques. So let's start with PISA. Percutaneous procedure, don't need any special anesthesia other than local anesthetic. You don't need any microsurgical skill. Um, it is a simple office procedure. The problem is that it is highly variable in terms of the yield that you can obtain because sometimes it depends on the anatomy of the patient. It may be difficult to palpate the epididymis and to insert the needle um, uh, into the epididymal area to obtain a clean sample of sperm. You can often cause bleeding during the hematoma because it's kind of a blinded procedure. Procedure. And another way to obtain sperm from the epididymis is the microsurgical counterpart in which you actually open the scrotal skin to see the epididymis. Um, you do need microsurgical skill and an operating microscope, and you get a very clean sample with good yield to allow you to freeze multiple samples to allow more than uh, a few trials of uh, IVF exe. So a, there was some advantage with that, but you do require to have a scrotal incision. So these are some of the picture of uh, isolating and specific epididymal tubules to obtain sperm with MISA. If you compare the PISA percutaneous versus the microsurgical version, you can see that, yes, there are there were some difference between the two techniques. The MISA, you do get a higher yield, cleaner sample. And again, you can cryopreserve or freeze more than one sample to allow multiple use uh, for uh, exit. Let's talk about the testicular sperm extraction uh, technique. So in these patients, particularly with non-structural azospermia, you have to obtain sperm from the testes. You can do it by aspiration, but in patients with non-structural azospermia, just aspirating the testes is much less likely to obtain sperm than if you were to take a piece of the testicular tissue. But in patients with obstructive azospermia, let's say you cannot find any sperm with PISA or MISA, you can still take sperm by TISA straight from the testes pretty easily for that. Again, percutaneous procedure, you don't need any microsurgical technique. Be aware of the potential complication risk because you may hit a blood vessel. Um, so you have to make sure you give good compression to avoid any bleeding. Um, because aspiration only gives you a small amount of fluid. You can take a core of tissue by using a biopsy gun, um, much like the one we use for prostate biopsy, but be very careful. Oftentimes for patients with non-obstructive azospermia, you may have to do multiple firing before you can obtain any sperm. So be very careful when you fire the biopsy gun, just be careful not to hit the surgeon's thumb because you may be biopsy your own thumb rather than the test. So be very careful when you do the, uh, the spring mechanism. 
Uh, testicular sperm extraction um, can also be done with a angiocatheter to obtain tissue. Um, you have to respect, again, the blood vessel distribution. As Dr. Goldstein mentioned, the upper lateral and upper medial aspect of the testis tend to have less um, uh, blood supply. So those are the areas that you can hit to obtain a uh, core of tissue for that. Uh, in patients with non-obstructed dyspermia, the more popular technique is statistical microdissection, uh, popularized at uh, Cornell, which many centers are adopting this technique now. The theory is basically, if you look at the testicular parenchyma, you can sometimes identify tubules that are thicker and bigger compared to other peripheral seminiferous tubules. These thicker and bigger tubules, they are more likely to harbor sperm that can be obtained. So by uh, examining the parenchyma under the microscope, you can inspect and just take out these small quantity of tubules without removing a big chunk of the parenchyma to um, get rid of the latex cell which you would need to make testosterone. So you can have a very focused extraction with minimal uh, risk of causing hypogonadism. As you can see uh, in these two comparisons, the quantity of tissue you take in conventional testicular biopsy or conventional TC is much more than what you would be taking with the micro TC. So these are the main difference. And when you do the micro TC or testicular micro dissection, which is another term for this technique, you basically have to bivalve the testes to allow you to inspect without any blind spot where there can potentially any tubules that can have sperm. So uh, you do need to have a scrotal incision and you do have to perform that very carefully for good hemostasis. Uh, as you can imagine, these procedures will take time. Um, here are some of the tips to remember when you want to perform micro-TC to have a good success for that. Uh, inspect the um, uh, albuginia under the microscope to avoid unnecessarily damaging the blood vessel, particularly the blood vessel underneath the tunica albuginia, not just the superficial one that you can see. So you want to preserve them to avoid any risk of ischemia. And make your incision to examine the superficial tubule first. If you don't find anything, then you explore further. Don't just start right away to rip the uh, testes apart to have it uh, bivalve right away. Start inspecting step by step. And if you don't find any sperm, then you can extend your incision to have the full uh, exploration. Again, it takes time. Generally, one side of uh, testes would take us one to two hours easily to inspect them. So be patient when you perform micro TC. Uh, as an example of how powerful testicular microdissection would be, uh, this is one of the earliest studies that I was involved looking at patients who have azospermia persistently after chemotherapy with the median time of azospermia 16 years after they end the chemotherapy. Even for these patients, pretty much they had a worst case scenario. With micro-TC, about 40-ish percent of patients, we can still find sperm to allow them to undergo ICSI. So this is a very powerful technique for you to obtain sperm in this difficult group of patients. So next, I'm going to pass the stage back to Dr. Goldstein on the next topic on the diagnostic code. Next slide. Okay, can we get, okay. Now this actually has changed. Uh, since Governor Cuomo in New York said that infertility is an essential um, uh, service to provide, um, now we actually use codes for infertility. But the rest of this, be specific. Go to the next slide. These are simple concepts. 
Use appropriate coating. If you have an etiology, put in varicocele. If it's a, an indurated tender epididymis, put epididymitis. If they've had an obstruction of the vas, whether it's from vasectomy or hernia repair, put in stricture. If they have a history of torsion, put in torsion. If they have a history of cancer, put in cancer. Next slide. This is, you could also code by symptoms. Blood in the sperm, hypofunction, meaning they have a low testosterone, testicular pain. Ask if they have any pain. If there's any history of pain, always record that in your notes because that's an etiology that's usually coverable by insurance. Next slide. If you could also um, a code according to findings on physical exam, an atrophic testicle, an epididymal cyst or spermatocele, a hydrocele, and use every code that applies. Use symptoms such as pain. Uh, use diagnosis such as varicocele. Uh, use physical exam findings such as atrophy. Next slide. Finally, dictate your own operative reports in great detail. Don't leave it to the residents. Indicate when an operating microscope is used and what magnification and code for all procedures performed. Next slide. I'm not going to go into uh, all the codes we could use for a simple thing like electroejaculation. Next slide. We have case presentations. Um, uh, I don't know if we have time for that, but I'm just going to um, uh, point out three things. Number one, get a heating pad, use it on your patient's scrotum. Never um, uh, do a post-ejaculate urine in someone who's absolutely azospermic. Never give testosterone as a treatment for infertility. Okay, do we have time to do the um, uh, case reports? Anyone out there going to tell me, or are we all done? Um, Dr. Uh, Goldstein, I think um, if you would like to go ahead and do a couple of case reports, and anyone who can uh, stay around sure. uh, can certainly stay around, then um, we'll go a little bit over time, but uh, I mean, everyone uh this this is, this is being recorded so if you miss something then you can come back and view the webcast okay let's go okay a 33 year old male and a 32 year old wife the first thing i'm going to say about this is the most important um predictor of outcomes assuming a man has any sperm at all is female age you know, uh, I use the real estate uh, analogy. What's the most important thing about um, the price of uh, a real estate? Location, location, location. And for fertility, female age, female age, female age. How many children do they want to have? If they want to have more than one, if they want to have several, uh, that might make a difference. How long have they been trying? As Mark Sigmund said, the longer a couple have been trying without success, the less likely they are to conceive. Next. Um, history, they have relations two to three times a week. So uh, he does ejaculate inside the wife. Ask that. Some men think they are having relations, but they actually don't ejaculate and don't even know what an orgasm is in some of the um, orthodox communities I work with. If a wife has regular periods, uh, is under age 35, has never had surgery on her reproductive organs or infections in her tubes, it's highly likely that she is going to be fine. The male had mumps at the age of 45, is not aware of his parents telling him about any uh, problems uh, with his testicles at that time. He'd been treated previously with Clomid um, for five months. 
He had high prolactin levels uh, treated successfully with pergoline. He had a previous percutaneous biopsy that found a few non-motile sperm. Next. On physical exam, his testicles were a little bit on the small side, a little bit soft. He had small to moderate varicoceles. He had no hernias. He had no masses. The vasa and epididymides uh, were normal. The prostate was normal. Next slide. So what's the plan? A complete semen analysis. Um, because the sperm count is very, very low, we want to do a genetic evaluation, a microwide deletion assay, and a karyotype, a testosterone, and an estradiol. Next. The semen analysis, uh, we found seven sperm, one motile, only after treatment with pentoxyphylene. The volume is normal. The normal volume means that he does not need a fructose test. It means that the seminal vesicles um, uh, are normal. Um, so this is not going to be an ejaculatory duct obstruction. Next. Total testosterone was normal, but that was with Clomid. So one of the things I always ask for is a baseline um, testosterone before he was started on this normal estradiol. So he had a microwide deletion assay, and he was positive for the ACFC deletion. Next. What are the next steps? Now, there, there are a lot of uh, 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 controversy here. Maybe I'll ask um, uh, Mark uh, uh, and Peter to comment on uh, what would be the next step. This is one option. Well, I think certainly um, correcting the varicocele when he had a clear clinical varicocele and examination, that would be one way to see if we can obtain more sperm. Um, he did have um, uh, sperm that you can find, and but he already kind of optimized with uh, medical therapy, including clomid and prolactin. Um, so I think they may need to, in addition to uh, looking into the uh, varicoselectomy, uh, the option of assisted reproduction should also be presented to them. Yes. Yeah, so a couple like this, I would tell them uh, that uh, uh, there's a good chance we'll be able to help him have children. His wife is young, um, has normal ovarian uh, reserve, um, and he has motile sperm, albeit very few, um, possibly not enough uh, to even inject all the eggs. So the next slide shows what happens after repairing the varicocele. Um, he had um, uh, no motile sperm at three months. Um, uh, uh, he had um, uh, uh, one sperm uh, seen after uh, six months. Um, uh, we stopped the Clomid. Um, uh, at the 10 months post-op, he had 76 sperm. Seven of them were motile. Um, by 14 and 15 months, um, he had, uh, if you convert this, it's several thousand sperm with 66% motility. So it's definitely enough for IVFixie using a fresh sperm sample. And in a case like this, uh, I would have them bank sperm uh, as many times as possible before the IVF in case on the day of the procedure, uh, it's not good. Next. Um, now we have a 35-year-old male, 27-year-old, attempting to conceive for eight months. They want to have three children, so we have a young wife. Previous analyses revealed a normal volume, but absolutely no sperm in the spun pellet. Next. So we, we uh, established that they're able to have relations. He underwent a unilateral uh, inguinal hernia repair and a left orchid apexy at the age of three to four. He underwent multiple hypospadias repairs starting at the age of two. He underwent two transurethral um, uh, incisions or resections for strictures of the urethra. 
He underwent urethroplasty with cheat milk four years previously. He self-catheterizes twice a week. He underwent a left orchiectomy for mixed germ cell tumor up to four years previously. He did not get chemo. He did not get RT. He did not cryopreserve sperm pre-op. It's shocking how often oncologists, even urologists, uh, fail to discuss cryopreservation prior to treatment for cancer. Even in older men undergoing radical prostatectomy, never assume that a man does not want children. My oldest fertility patient uh, was 87, came in with his 28-year-old wife. He'd had a prostatectomy. I extracted sperm, successfully fertilized. Probably the oldest patient documented to have successfully fertilized an egg. We knew it was his egg. Um, he takes 20 milligrams of Paxil, 500 milligrams of amoxicillin. Next. He has bilateral inguinal and left scrotal scars. He has a solitary, slightly soft right testis, a slightly full right epididymis, a normal right vas, no masses, no inguinal hernias that have occurred. So we got a total testosterone. I got an anti-sperm antibody assay because even though this seems like non-obstructive, you can't make any assumptions. He had hernia repairs. Uh, um, he had on that right side. Uh, so we ordered a semen analysis with an extensive search. And then because he had testis cancer on one side, this is one case where I ordered a scrotal ultrasound looking for a testis tumor, possible varicocele, full epididymides, microwide deletion, karyotype. Next. So we had a testosterone that was absolutely normal, an estradiol that was 26, but he had a very elevated FSH. So uh, right away, normal should be under eight, um, and his was 19.2, uh, uh, upper normal LH, normal prolactin, um, so the cabergoline was working, negative micro-Y, normal karyotype, negative antibodies. Sono um, showed a small right varicocele, no masses, right epididymal cyst. So what should we do next? Next. So there are several possibilities. Uh, in this case, I recommended scrotal exploration, vasotomy and vasogram. If I found dilated epidermal tubules, although the negative antibody assay suggests he's probably not obstructed, but if he's obstructed prepubitally, remember he had multiple hypospadias repairs, men who are obstructed prepubitally, a majority of them actually have negative antibodies. It's men who are subtly obstructed after puberty, such as from hernia or vasectomy, that are more likely to have antibodies. If he's reconstructable and it's obstruction, we'll reconstruct him. Otherwise, we'll do an attempted testicular sperm retrieval, preferably at the same time his wife is having uh, her eggs retrieved. Next. Okay, so we underwent exploration of vasogram. There was incredibly dense scar tissue around his testis and epididymis. He was, in fact, obstructed, and I could trace the obstruction right to the efferent ducts. I didn't find sperm anywhere because I couldn't even see the epididymis, but I finally was able to find, after extensive searching, I mean, I looked for two or three hours, I finally found one single dilated efferent duct, and we got great sperm from it. Next slide. Next. That's the last slide, Dr. Goldstein. Oh, that's the last slide. Okay. So anyway, we got, we got great sperm from this patient. Uh, you remember this patient, Vanessa. Um, uh, so it turns out he, he had a high FSH, but he also had only a solitary testis. Um, he didn't have, um, normally we'd find 75 million on a 
patient who's obstructed, we've got about 75,000, but good motility, uh, so he's not needed testing, and he's got plenty of sperm, but they will need to do IVF. Do you have another case? That's the last uh, slide, but you do have oh. a couple of questions that I emailed you. Oh, questions, okay. You have the questions also, Mark and Peter? Okay. No. Let's all right. I don't get. I didn't get the email with questions. Well, maybe, um, I, Dr. Goldstein, maybe we don't you. have time for the questions since we uh, want to try to uh, wrap this up for everyone, if that's okay. Yeah, well, I just see two questions that I think we can address right away. How do you increase sperm yield before doing a testing? And we, um, uh, 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 I'll, I'll, Peter, why don't you answer that? Yeah, so um, there were a couple of um, uh, small studies looking at using uh, different kind of hormonal stimulation. Uh, for example, the medication, the empirical therapy that Dr. Sigmund uh, covered, pretty much those are the choices. For example, uh, there were oral form of using clomiphene citrate or tamoxifen, and in patients who seems to have high estrogen status, because of high aromatase activity, then aromatase inhibitors such as arimidex uh, could be another option. Other than that, there are some studies actually showing to use gonadotropin, that is recombinant FSH, for example, or HMG injection for a period of uh, anywhere between one to four months before they do micro-TC. Uh, the data, they are not super, super strong to justify the cost, particularly for gonadotropin. Nonetheless, that's one way you can try to do. Uh, at the very least, if you really fail micro-TC after trying the injection, you really cannot say you didn't try everything. So it's a good psychological closure in a way for these patients. Yeah, I'm just going to quickly address the very first question in a 41-year-old male. Um, this is from Tamir Misalati, two years of, uh, of no contraception, wife is 36. He is azospermic with a normal hormone profile, no mention of volume. That would be important if we want to know what is the semen volume. He has a left-sided palpable varicocele, even without Valsalva. But varicoceles virtually never cause absolute azospermia, even big ones. Um, the semen volume is normal and alkaline, okay, so he does not have ejaculatory duct obstruction. Do I have to proceed to microscopic subbing little varicocelectomy or compare for testis biopsy? This is the perfect patient to do an anti-sperm antibody assay in his blood. And if it's highly positive, don't do the varicocele repair. He's obstructed. You go to reconstruction. Um, if it turns out when you exploit him that there's no evidence of obstruction, at that time you can then go and repair the varicocele. Um, Mark or Peter, do you have any comments on that one? No, I agree with that because in this particular case that once you rule out obstruction being the main cause, the only other way you can uh, optimize his chance of finding sperm in a non-obstructive setting is either to fix the varicocele or use empirical therapy that we talked about. So I agree with the approach. Mark? I agree. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think uh, the contact information for all three of us is available uh, on the uh, uh, webinar, uh, the original information, and I'm happy uh, to answer emails from anybody, uh, and I'm sure Mark and Peter would be also. Uh, this has actually been great. It's worked out quite well. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Mark. Um, and thanks all of the attendees and the uh, AUA staff that set this all up for us. Great.